I am proud to come to this city as the guest of your distinguished mayor, who has symbolized throughout the world the fighting spirit of West Berlin. And I am proud to visit the federal public with your distinguished camp chancellor, who for so many years has committed Germany to democracy and freedom and progress, and to come here in the company of my fellow American, General Clay, who has been in this city during its great moments of crisis and will come again if ever needed. 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was Civis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. I appreciate the interpreter translating my German. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say that communism is the way of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say Europe and elsewhere we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it is true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lass sein nach Berlin kommen. Let them come to Berlin. Freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect, but we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. I want to say on behalf of my countrymen who live many miles away on the other side of the Atlantic, who are far distant from you, that they take the greatest pride that they have ever been able to share with you, even from a distance. The story of the last 18 years, I know of no town, no city that has ever been besieged for 18 years that still lives with the vitality and the force and the hope and the determination of the city of West Berlin. While the wall is the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system for all the world to see, we take no satisfaction in it, for it is, as your mayor has said, an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity, separating families, dividing husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and dividing the people who wish to be joined together. What is true of this city is true of Germany. Real, lasting peace in Europe can never be assured as long as one German out of four is denied the elementary right of free men, and that is to make a free choice. In 18 years of peace and good faith, the generation of Germans has earned the right to be free, including the right to unite their families and their nation in lasting peace, with goodwill to all people. You live in the deafened island of freedom, but your life is part of the main. So let me ask you as I close, to lift your eyes beyond the dangers of today, to the hopes of tomorrow, beyond the freedom merely of this city of Berlin, or your country of Germany, to the advance of freedom everywhere, beyond the wall to the day of peace of justice, beyond yourselves and ourselves to all mankind. Freedom is indivisible, and when one man is enslaved, all are not free. When all are free, then we can look forward to the day when this city will be joined as one, in this country and this great continent of Europe in a peaceful and hopeful globe. When that day finally comes, as it will, the people of West Berlin can take sober satisfaction in the fact that they were in the front lines for almost two decades. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin and, therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. President Pitzer, Mr. Vice President, Governor, Congressman Thomas, Senator Wiley, and Congressman Miller, Mr. Webb, Mr. Bell, scientists, distinguished guests, and ladies and gentlemen. 
I appreciate your president having made me an honorary visiting professor, and I will assure you that my first lecture will be very brief. I am delighted to be here, and I am particularly delighted to be here on this occasion. We meet at a college noted for knowledge, and a city noted for progress, and a state noted for strength, and we stand in need for all three, for we meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. Despite the striking fact that most of the scientists that would have never known are alive and working today, despite the fact that this nation's own scientific manpower is doubling every 12 years in a rate of growth more than three times that of our own population as a whole, despite that, the vast stretches of the unknown and unanswered and the unfinished still far outstrip our collective comprehension. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come, but condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of but half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them. Then about 10 years ago, under this standard, man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter. Only five years ago, man learned to write and use a cart with wheels. Christianity began less than two years ago. The printing press came this year. And then less than two months ago, during this whole 50-year span of human history, the steam engine provided a new source of power. Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Last month, electric lights and telephones and automobiles and airplanes became available. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. And now if America's new spacecraft succeeds in reaching Venus, we will have literally reached the stars before midnight tonight. This is a breathtaking pace and such a pace that could, cannot help but create new ills as it dispels old, new ignorances, new problems, new dangers. Surely the opening vistas of space promises high costs and hardships as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we a little longer to rest to wait. But this city of Houston, this city of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who moved forward and so will space. William Bradford, speaking in 1630 of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony, said that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties and both must be enterprised in overcoming with answerable courage. In this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead whether we join in on it or not. And it's one of the great adventures of time and no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in the race for space. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of industrial revolutions, the first waves of modern invention, and the first waves of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to be the founder and the backwash of the coming age of space. We need to be men and part of it. We need to lead it for the eyes of the world now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not go and see governed by the hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, both instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first, and therefore we intend to be first. In short, 
our leadership in science and in industry, our hopes for peace and security, our obligations to ourselves as well as others, all require us to make this effort to solve these mysteries, to solve them for the good of all men, and to become the world's leading spacefaring nation. We set sail in this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science and all technology, and no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man, and only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. I do not say that we should or will go unprotected against the hostile misuse of space any more than we go unprotected against the hostile use of land or sea. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes a man has made us and extending his writ around this globe of ours. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in our, our space as of yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation. Many never, never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may as well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because this goal will deserve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we tend to win, and the others too. It is for these reasons that I regard the decision of the last year to shift our efforts in space from low to high gears among the most important decisions that will be made during my incumbency in the office of the presidency. Oop, the presidency, I apologize. In the last 24 hours, we have seen facilities now being created for the great guests in most complex exploration in man's history. We have felt the ground shake and the air shattered by the testing of Saturn C-1 booster rocket, many times as powerful as the Atlas which launched John Glenn, generating powerful equivalent to 10,000 automobiles with their accelerators on the floor. We have seen the site where the F-1 rocket engines, each one as powerful as all eight engines of the Saturn combined, will be clustered together to make the advanced Saturn missile assembled in a new building to be built at Cape Carnival as tall as 48-story structure, as wide as a city block, and as long as two lengths of this field. Within these last 19 months and last 48 satellites have circled the Earth. Some 40 of them were made in the United States of America, and they were far more sophisticated and supplied for more than knowledge than the people of the world than those of the Soviet Union. The Mariner spacecraft now on its way to Venus is the most intricate instrument in the history of space science. The accuracy of that shot is comparable to firing a missile from Cape Carnival and dropping it in the stadium between the 40-yard line. Transit satellites are helping our ships at sea to steer a safer course. Tiro's satellites have given us unprecedented warnings of hurricanes and storms and will do the same for forest fires and icebergs. We have had our failures, but so have others. And even if they do not admit them, they may be less public. To be sure, we are behind and will be behind for some time in the modern flight. But we do not intend to stay behind. And in this decade, we shall make up and move ahead. The growth of our science and education will be enriched by our new knowledge of the universe and environment. By new techniques of learning and mapping the observation. 
by new tools and computers of industry, medicine, the home, as well as the school. Technical institutions such as Rice will reap the harvest of these gains. And finally, the space itself, while still in its infancy, has already created a great number of new companies and tens of thousands of new jobs. Space and related industries are generating new demands and investment in skilled personnel. And this city and in this state and this region will share greatly in this growth. What was once the furthest outpost in the old frontier of the West will be the furthest outpost in the new frontier of space and science. Houston, your city of Houston, with its manned spacecraft center, will become the heart of the largest scientific engineering community. During the next five years, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration expects to double the number of scientists and engineers in this area to increase its outlays for sal salaries and expenses to 60 million a year to invest some 200 million in plant and laboratory facilities and to direct our contract for new space efforts over 1 billion from this center in this city. To be sure of us all a good deal of money, this year's space project is three times what it was in January 1961 and is greater than the space project of the previous eight years combined. That budget now stands at 5,400 5, million a year, a staggering sum. That's five billion four hundred. Why is that written like that? Okay, though somewhat less than we pay for cigarettes and cigars every year. Space expenditures will soon rise some more, from forty cents per person per week to more than fifty cents a week for every man, woman, and child in the United States. For we have given this program a high national priority. Even though I realize that this is in some measure an act of faith and vision, we do not know what benefits await us. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which had not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than has ever been experienced, fitted together with precision better than the finest watch, carrying all of the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food and survival, and an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and they return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at a speed of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half of the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it here today. And to do all this, and to do it right, and to be, do it first before this decade is out, the way you must be bold. I am the one that is doing all the work so we just want to say, cool for a minute. However, I think we're going to do it. And I think we must pay what needs to be paid. I don't think we ought to waste any money. But I think we ought to do the job. And this will be done in the decade of the 60s. It may be done while some of you are still here at school at this college and university. It will be done during the term of office and of some of the people who sit here on this platform. But it will be done. And it will be done before the end of this decade. I am delighted that this university is playing a part in putting a man on the moon as part of our great national effort of the United States of America. Many years ago, great British explorer George Malroy, who died on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there and we are going to climb it and the moon and the planets are there and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and great greatest journey on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. Now I shall begin Winston Churchill's speech.
we shall fight on the beaches. From the moment that the French defenses at Sedan and on the Meuse were broken at the end of the second week of May, only a rapid retreat to the Amiens of the south could have saved the British and French armies who had entered Belgium at the appeal of the Belgian king. But this strategic fact was not immediately realized. The French high command hoped that they would be able to close the gap, and the armies of the north were under their orders. Moreover, a retirement of this kind will have involved almost certainly the destruction of the fine Belgian army of over 20 divisions and the abandonment of the whole of Belgium. Therefore, when the force and the scope of the German penetration were realized and when a new French generalissimo, General Wagen, assumed command in place of General Gamelin, an effort was made by the French and the British armies in Belgium to keep on holding the right hand of the Belgians and to give their own right hand to a newly created French army, which was to be advanced across the Somme in great strength to grasp it. However, the German eruption swept like a sharp scythe around the right and the rear of the armies and the north. Eight or nine armored divisions, each of about 400 armored vehicles of different kinds, but carefully assorted to be complementary and divisible into small self-contained units, cut off all communications between us and the main French armies. It severed our own communications for food and ammunition, which ran first to Amiens and afterwards through Abbeville. Oh, Abbeville, I apologize. And it shores its way up to the coasts of Boulogne and Calais and almost to Dunkirk. Behind this armored and mechanized onslaught came a number of German divisions in lorries, and behind them again there plodded comparatively slowly to the dull, brute mass of the ordinary German army and the German people, always so ready to be led to the trampling down in other lands and liberties and comforts which they have never known in their own. I have said this armored scythe stroke almost reached Dunkirk. Almost, but not quite. Boulogne and Calais were the scenes of desperate fighting. The guards defended Boulogne for a while and were then withdrawn by orders from this country. The rifle brigade, the 60th rifles, and the Queen Victoria's rifles, with a battalion of British tanks and a hundred, ooh, a thousand Frenchmen, and all but 4,000 strong divided Calais to the last. The British brigadier was given an hour to surrender. He spurned an offer, and four days of intense street fightings passed between silence reigned over Calais, which marked the end of a memorable resistance. Only 30 unwounded survivors were brought off by the Navy, and we do not know the fate of their comrades. Their sacrifice, however, was not in vain. At least two armored divisions, which otherwise would have been turned against the British expeditionary force, had to be sent to overcome them. They added another page to the glories of the light divisions, and at the time gained enabled the Graveline water lines to be flooded and to be held by the French troops. Thus it was that that the port of Dunkirk was kept open. When it was found impossible for the armies of the north to reopen their communications to Amiens and the front main French armies, only one choice remained. It seemed indeed forlorn. The Belgian, British, and French armies were almost surrounded. Their sole line of retreat was to a single port in its neighboring beaches, they were pressed on every side by heavy attacks and far outnumbered in the air. When a week ago today, I asked the House to fix this afternoon on the occasion for a statement. I feared it would be hard to lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought, and some good judges around me, 
that perhaps 20,000 or 30,000 men might re-embarked. But it certainly seemed that the whole of the French First Army and the whole of the British Expeditionary Force north of the Amiens Abbeville Gap would be broken up in the open field or else would have to capitulate for the lack of food and ammunition. These were the hard and heavy tidings for which I call upon the House and the nation to prepare themselves a week ago. The whole root and core of the British army on which and around we were to build are to build the great British armies in the later years of the war seemed about to perish upon the field or to be led into an ignominious and starving capacity. captivity. <clears throat> that was the prospect a week ago, but another blow which might have well proved final was yet to fall upon us. The king and the Belgians had called upon us to come to his aid. Had not this ruler and his government severed themselves from the allies who rescued their country from extinction in the late war, and they had not sought refuge in what was proved to be a fatal neutrality, the French and the British armies might well as at the outset have not saved not only the Belgium, but perhaps even Poland. Yet that last moment when Belgium was already invaded, King Leopold called upon us to come to his aid, and even at the last moment we came, he and his brave, efficient army, nearly half a million strong, guarded our left flank and thus kept open our only line of retreat to the sea. Suddenly, without prior consultation, with the least possible notice, without the advice of his ministers and upon his own personal act, he sent a plenipotentiary, ooh, let me, let me like to pronounce that word, plenipotentiary, to the German command, surrounded to his army and exposed our whole flank and means of retreat. I asked the House a week ago to suspend its judgment because the facts were not clear. But I do not feel that any reason now exists that why we should not form our own opinions upon this pitiful episode. The surrender of the Belgian army compelled the British at the shortest notice to cover a flank to the sea more than 30 miles in length. Otherwise, all would have been cut off and all would have shared the fate to which King Leopold had condemned the first army his country had ever formed. So doing this and exposing this flank, as anyone who followed the operations of the Maple Sea, contact was lost between the British and the two of the three corps farming the first French army, who were still farther from the coast than we were, and it seemed impossible that any large number of Allied troops could reach the coast. The enemy attacked us on all sides with great strength and fierceness. And their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches, pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west. The enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches, by which alone the shipping could not approach or depart. They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast their palms upon a single pierre that sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation. Whoops, I just reread that same line. I apologize. That remained, and upon the same sand dunes upon which the troops of their eyes for shelter. Their year boats, which was sunk, and their motor launches took their toll for the vast traffic which now began. For four out of five days, an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions, or what was left of them, together with great masses of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting ever appendix within which the British and French armies fought. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy, with the willing help of countless merchant seamen, strained every nerve to embark the British and Allied troops. 220 light warships, 650 other vessels were engaged. They had to operate upon the difficult coast, 
often in adverse weather under an almost ceaseless hail of bombs and an increasingly concentration of artillery fire. Nor were the seas, as I said, themselves free from mines and torpedoes. I was in conditions such as these our men carried on, with little or no rest for days and nights on end, making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers that they brought back were in the measure of their devotion and their courage. The hospital ships, which brought off many thousands of British and French wounded, being so plainly marked were a special target for Nazi bombs, but the men and the women on board of them never faltered in their duty. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force, which had been intervening in the battle, so far its range it would allow from home base, now used part of its main metropolitan fighter strength and struck at the German bombers and the fighters, which in large numbers protected them. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly the scene had cleared and the crash and thunder and this for a moment, but only for the moment died away. Let me reread that. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly the scene had cleared. The crash and the thunder has for the moment, but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerably fidelity is manifest to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British and French troops. He was so roughly handled that he did not hurry their departure seriously. The Royal Air Force engaged the main strength of the German Air Force, inflicted upon them losses of at least four to one. And the Navy, using nearly every 1,000 ships of all kinds, carried 335,000 men, French and British, out of the jaws of death and shame to their native land and to the task which lie immediately ahead. We may be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations, but there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers coming back have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers, which escaped its protective uh, attack. They underrate its achievements. I have heard much talk of this. That is why I go out of my way to say this. I will tell you about it. This was a great trial of strength between the British and German air forces. Can you conceive a greater objective for the Germans in the air than to make evacuation from these beaches impossible and to sink all these ships which were displayed almost to the extent of thousands? Could there have been an objective of greater military importance and significance for the whole purpose of the war than this? They tried hard and they were beaten back. They were frustrated in their task. We got this army away and they have paid fourth fold of any losses they were inflicted. Very large formations of German aeroplanes, and we know that they are a very brave race, have turned on several occasions from the attack of one quarter of the Royal Air Force and have dispersed into different locations. Twelve aeroplanes have been hunted by two. One aeroplane was driven into the water and cast away by the mere charge of a British airplane, which had no more ammunition. All of our types, the Hurricane, the Spitfire, and the new Defiant, and all of our pilots have been vindicated as superior to what they have present to face.